Hey, good morning, Valley Real Life. How you doing? My name is Brad Nelson, and I am a writer, a teacher, a content creator for an organization called Walking the Text. And we have a podcast, we've got a YouTube channel, we lead trips to Israel and Turkey, and that's actually where I met Pastor Dan and his wife, Carolina, a couple of years ago, and um, was excited to lead a trip with VRL this coming September, but unfortunately, with the conflict, we're postponing that trip till 2005. But um, we do this work because we have learned that when people understand the text in context, they understand more fully what they're reading and then they engage it more deeply and then somehow they live it out more persuasively. And so we've kind of just given our lives to this task of helping people to read the Bible in its context. Now, some of you may have been here last spring. When I was here, I came with my daughter and uh, Clara, she did a reading as a part of the sermon that I was doing and I texted her um, Wednesday when I got in and I just said, babe, um, it's just so weird being back in Spokane without you. And I wanna read to you her response because this moment when she helped me last year was a pretty big moment in her life. And so this is what she had to say. The night I read those verses at VRL, something changed. I felt a deeper love and want to experience the Lord and spread the gospel. I prayed to God and he answered. I talked to him and he responded. I asked him questions and he gave me answers. I saw him and heard him in very real ways. I felt his presence and heard his voice and it was good. It was really, really good. It was a big trip for me physically and spiritually. That's why Spokane is so special to me. Oh my gosh, you guys. So as a grateful dad, you need to understand what a big deal it is that a 13-year-old girl can come on stage in front of hundreds of people and feel love and support and encouragement that inspires her to go deeper with Jesus. And I think that speaks volumes about what the Spirit of God is doing in your midst. And I am so grateful and I just cheer you on and say, keep doing that. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. So um, Dan asked if I would be willing to come back and continue through this series of Revelation. Dun, dun, dun. Beasts, dragons. Babylon, apocalypse, any of you ever read through Revelation and find yourself thinking, am I reading a science fiction comic book or am I having devotions right now? I mean, this is just a book that can be so confusing. And here's the good news, you're not alone in that. It has been that way from the very beginning. Because if you look back through church history, what you're gonna find is that there was intense debate about how to make sense of Revelation and even intense debate about whether or not the letter of Revelation belonged in our Bibles. 
So there's all these really well-known church fathers who said, yeah, we're not sure that that goes in the canon. One of them is somebody you'll probably be familiar with, a guy by the name of Martin Luther, the Protestant Reformation. Um, this was a man prone to a little bit of overstatement. So I'm just warning you, I wanna read to you what he had to say about the letter of Revelation. He said, Revelation is neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. They are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is. <laughs> I love his honesty. To say nothing of keeping it, Christ is neither known nor taught in it. Oh, can you imagine if that guy had a Twitter account? I mean, it'd be just be crazy. So because Revelation historically has been so hard to understand, people tend to do one of two things with it. We either ignore it, like yeah, it's in the Bible, we know it's important, but yeah, I'm not just gonna read it. Or we obsess about it. Everything's about Revelation. And if you wanna know what that's like, I would invite you to come to one of my family Thanksgiving meals. I've got a couple family members. Be happy to walk you through how it all comes back to Revelation. But it's in our Bible. And we need to know how to read it well. And so I wanna just, before we jump into the letter to the church at Thyatira, I just wanna give you two interpretive handles that can help kind of orient you anytime you're in Revelation and you're like, what in the world is this? So first, first handle is that the letter of Revelation has 404 verses. And in those 404 verses, there are 518 references to the Old Testament. More than one per passage. So if we're gonna stand any chance at knowing what we're reading, you can't just read Revelation in isolation, you have to read it alongside the Old Testament. You've gotta catch all the hints and the allusions to these Old Testament stories. And then secondly, Though the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. It was written to particular people in particular places at a particular time. In the case of the letter of Revelation, to these churches in Asia Minor or present day Turkey. And what's gonna happen is if you read through these letters in Revelations two and three, they're gonna be all of these statements and images and symbols that are gonna seem really weird and bizarre to you unless you know something about what's happening on the ground in places like Ephesus or Thyatira or Sardis. So if we're gonna understand Revelation, we gotta read widely, but think locally. And if we do those two things, we've got a much better shot of understanding what it is that we're working with. So with that, Come with me to the town of Ephesus. And this is a virtual reconstruction of what the city of Ephesus would have looked like. Pastor Dan talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a center of medicine, a center of banking, a center of slave trade, had a huge theater at the center of town, seated 25,000 people. You read about this theater in the book of Acts when Paul basically starts a riot and for a couple of hours the people chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can still walk this main street today 
And on the same hillside that the camera is going into now, there is a covered porch that preserves all of these ancient Roman villas. And you can walk through them and still see where dinner was served and the different rooms where people would have met. Now, what's interesting about this is there wasn't a church building in the first century. There were house churches who met in those kinds of homes. You've got the, the Hippodrome there. And of course, as Dan mentioned, the thing that Ephesus was known for more than anything else was this Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in a nutshell, if I took you to Ephesus, we could walk through it, and for days, we would never get to the end. But if you come with me to Thyatira, that's all you get. You can see the whole thing in five minutes. In fact, if the camera just panned a little left, you see, okay, there's some remains of a Roman street, and then during COVID, they found some of these archways and set them back up, but we would hop the fence, maybe see a couple goats, and there you go. That's because Thyatira is the smallest of the seven cities. And it's small, but it's not insignificant as we're gonna see. Now, if I show you this map, um, Smyrna and Ephesus are on a port. And in the ancient world, if you have a port, that means you're rich. Everybody wants a port. So they've got that. And then if you see the brown on this map, that's elevation. So Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, they're, they're built on these really high perches. I mean, these are almost impregnable cities. And then you got Thyatira out there in the middle of the river valley. And Thyatira was incredibly vulnerable. In fact, in a lot of ways, Thyatira was sort of a tripwire for Pergamum. Thyatira and Pergamum had a relationship kind of like Gary, Indiana, and Chicago, Illinois. Nobody's going to Gary, but you're glad when you get there because it means you're almost to Chicago. And it's kind of the same situation with Thyatira, but because they're out in the valley, on this roadway, I don't know if you've ever been driving down the expressway and you just pass an exit and there's like six distribution centers, huge corporations. It feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, but it's a great distribution site. That's Thyatira, okay? And they're out there in the middle of the plain and it's a place of agriculture. And the reason that that is important is because when Thyatira was founded, it was founded near the temple of the local sun god. And by the time we get to the first century when Revelation chapter two and three are written, the local sun god is the Greek god Apollo. The sun god, but Apollo in Greek mythology is the son of the high god Zeus. So catch this, Apollo is the sun god, but Apollo is also the son of God. Now that's language most of us are familiar with when we think of Jesus as the son of God. Did you know that expression, the son of God, only shows up one place in all of Revelation? At the beginning of this letter. Jesus begins by saying to them, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the son of God. By the way, there's only one of them, and it's me. Jesus is speaking in clear and unambiguous terms about who is God and who is not. And this is 
reality on the ground if you are in Thyatira. Now, um, one of the things that you're gonna find in Thyatira is it's built underneath this modern city called Akisar. And uh, what happens in the ancient world in the East, wherever you have like um, archeological sites buried underneath modern cities, you get these really enterprising people who are like, oh, that's pretty good stonework. Let's use that in our home. And so um, even though there's not much to see in Thyatira, if you go through people's homes, they've taken this beautiful marble work and they've built it into their basement wall or they're using it as their kitchen island, you know, this kind of stuff. So between 2005 and 2012, there was a woman, an archeologist, who went through everybody's homes in Thyatira and uncovered hundreds of inscriptions and they were blown away to discover that when they read through these inscriptions, each of these inscriptions ended with, and you can see the letters in all caps there, a sign and symbol for the trade guild that dedicated that inscription. And what we discovered is that even though Thyatira is the smallest of the seven churches, it had more trade guilds than any of the other cities. So what we know is that Thyatira is a blue collar town. And these trade guilds think unions were really, really powerful. So when all was said and done, they found a list of like bronze workers and tanners and leather workers and purple dyers. And the purple dyers is interesting because if you read through the book of Acts, when Paul gets to Philippi, he meets a woman named Lydia who's a dealer in purple cloth and she is from where? Thyatira. Thyatira was known for its purple cloth. In fact, the Roman emperors had an exclusive contract with Thyatira to get their purple cloth. And that's where Lydia is from. Wool workers, linen workers, I mean, the list just goes on and on. There were all of these trade guilds. Now, these guilds were powerful. I mean, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and so I, that means if you live in Flint, everybody you know works at General Motors. And everybody who works at General Motors, for the most part, is a part of the United Auto Workers Union. And if you live in Michigan, what becomes very clear to you is that the UAW is the center of economic power. It is the center of political influence. And there is a lot of social pressure if you work and are a part of the UAW, there is a lot of social pressure for you to get on board and for you to be on the right side of whatever conflict or whatever's happening in the community, right? And so I just, as I was prepping, I went to the UAW website and this is the landing page. People standing shoulder to shoulder, fists raised with this idea of unite Guys, there is something powerful that gets unleashed in the human heart when we find unity together around a cause. And I love this, the red button here at the bottom, this call to action, it starts with you. The message of the union is your participation is really, really important. In fact, I read a story uh, on NPR a couple of months ago and one of the ladies in the story was quoted as saying, we are counting on our siblings 
in the auto industry to come and join us on the picket lines. That language, siblings. If you are a part of a trade guild, you are a part of a family. And by the way, your participation is expected. You better show up and you better be a part. Now, this was almost on steroids in Thyatira because to be a part of a trade guild didn't just mean that the guild was the center of your economic life, your political life, your social life. It was also the center of your religious life. And so each month, these trade guilds would get together at what was called a guild feast. It was a celebratory meal, and you would gather in the temple or in a building dedicated to your pagan deity, in this case, Dionysus. But it might be Zeus, it might be Apollo, it could be Artemis. And before the meal would start, you would make a sacrifice to your patron deity. And then you would take that food that was sacrificed to this god, and you would serve it for the meal. And at some point before the meal begins, one of your brothers in the guild stands up and says, oh, Dionysus, we bless you for all the generosity and blessing that you have unleashed in our lives. And now we take this meal in your honor. Now, if you're a Christian, are you a little uncomfortable yet? And because nothing happened in the Roman Empire without Caesar's say-so, at another point in the meal, somebody was going to stand up and take a cup and lead everyone in pouring out a drink offering to Caesar. Guess what Caesar called himself in the first century? Kyrios and Soter, Lord and Savior. So you go to these meals, you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, you're pouring out a drink offering in honor of Caesar as Lord. And then as the meal progresses, things get a little more intense. In fact, you wouldn't eat at a table. You know, get, get Michelangelo's picture of the Last Supper out of your head. You would eat at a triclinium. And this is a picture of a triclinium in Petra, Jordan. And you see this three-sided U-shaped thing. All the food and the, the servers would kind of place everything in the center there. And you would sit, you would recline on these elevated stone couches, and you would recline on your left elbow, and you would eat with your right hand. And as the night went on, and as the wine flowed freely, these couches turned into places where, well, how can I say it? The entertainment happened. These guild feasts were notorious for descending into a drunken orgy. So the couches on which you dined became the couches on which you debauched. And this is what's happening in Thyatira. Let me put it to you this way. If you're a Christian, you live in this city and you have a family and you wanna stand a shot at making a living and feeding them, you don't have any other choice but to join a trade guild. And the pressure on you is intense to show up and to participate because you can only call out sick so many times before your siblings wanna know where you've been. 
Are you trying to get us in trouble with Caesar? Are you trying to incur the wrath of Dionysus? You have got to show up. You've got to pour out the drink offering. You've got to be a part of these meals. Friends, to live in Thyatira was to live in a crucible of compromise. And the question with that backdrop is, what is the resurrected Jesus going to have to say about what's happening in Thyatira? So with all of that, let me read to you the letter in full, Revelation chapter two, beginning in verse 18. Write this letter to the church Uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these deeds. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to you, each of you, whatever according to your deeds. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who've not followed the false teachings, the deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Now, when you hear words like that, Are you thinking to yourself, that doesn't feel real Jesus-y? I will cast her on a bed of suffering. By the way, the word there, bed, it's the same exact word for triclinium. The idea is that, hey, your pleasure couch is going to become your hospital couch. I will will kill her children. the, the, the implication is not that God is actually going to kill this woman's children so much as I think that God is going to come against the teachers who have adopted this woman's teaching. So just, just a couple quick observations about that letter. It is the longest letter to the smallest church. Jesus has a lot to say and he's not mincing words. He is calling it exactly as he sees it. And the language is intense. And all the language seems to have to do with this woman named Jezebel. And here's where we need to bring in the Old Testament references because Jezebel was a Sidonian princess from the area of Phoenicia who married an Israelite king, King Ahab. And Jezebel, as soon as she comes into the kingdom, she begins systematically murdering the prophets of Yahweh 
and leads the country into idolatrous worship of Baal, the fertility god. And if you're an ancient person worshiping a fertility god, that involves sexual immorality. Jezebel is a symbol of one of the most vile people in our Bibles. And you think to yourself, well, gosh, if she's so vile, why did Ahab marry her in the first place? It's because of where she's from. She's a princess of Sidon, which has a what? A port. And if you want to provide for your country, if you want to enrich yourself, you have to get your goods to the port. Guys, Ahab doesn't marry Jezebel for love. He marries her for money. One scholar says it this way, Ahab sold his soul for financial gain, which had come through his marriage to Jezebel of Phoenicia, sealing a northern trade alliance. So what is happening in Thyatira is there's a woman in the church who calls herself a prophetess. We don't know what her name is. Jesus labels her a Jezebel. And essentially what she's teaching the Christians in Thyatira is it's okay to claim you believe in Jesus and go to the guild feasts. It's okay to claim you believe in Jesus and eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's okay you claim to believe in Jesus and conduct your sexual life in public in a way that's no different from everybody else. In essence, her message is It's okay to claim you believe in Jesus and live like everybody else. And I don't know about you, but this is about the point where this message jumps off the page and starts to run around inside my heart, knocking stuff over. Because this is the world we live in. Friends, we live at a moment in history when followers of Jesus, particularly in the West, have bought into the lie that it's okay to believe in Jesus but not actually follow him. And it's devastating because what we do matters. Um, This is a book by John Mark Comer. It's a bestseller, came out like last week. And in this book, John Mark Comer quotes a stat from the Barna Group. And even in this moment, 2024, when you and I keep reading these news stories about how people are walking away from faith and walking away from the church in droves, what they found is that 63% of Americans still claim to believe in Jesus. But when you ask that same 63% of Americans who claim to believe in Jesus, are you living your life any differently on a daily basis because of that belief? That 63% becomes 4%. Guys, we have a crisis of discipleship in the church It is not okay, according to Jesus, that we claim to believe in him and our our faith and our actions and our deeds don't match up. If we're living like that, we have a problem because what you do matters. Your deeds matter. And that's the word that keeps coming up. It's the word Jesus uses five times 
in the letter. He says, deeds, 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 deeds. I care about what you do. And yet so often when you talk about this in Christian churches, you get pushback. 20 years as a pastor. And you know what people say to me? Pastor, I'm saved by grace through faith. And this is not of work so that nobody could boast. And I say, yes, hallelujah, amen, thank you, Jesus. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. But did you know that when Paul wrote those words, he wasn't done? Because the very next verse is this. Is this. Is this. (laughs) There we go. For we are what he has made us created in Christ Jesus for good deeds, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Friends, our deeds, if we can go to the next slide, our deeds bear witness to the faith we claim to have. And if they don't, we have a problem, and that's very serious to Jesus. And so I just wanna say two things. If you are in this room right now and you have said yes to Jesus and as you hear this story, if there's a part of your conscience that is pricked because you know the faith you claim to have does not match the life that you're living. Listen, I don't wanna shame you and I don't wanna guilt you and I don't wanna chase you away. What I wanna say to you is have the courage to take drastic action now to address that. Because guys, Jesus is good. He's kind and he knows better than we do about what leads to life. And if you will count the cost and you will follow him, he will lead you to the life that's truly life. And then I wanna leave you with this. I wanna paint a picture for you of what happens when God's people have deeds that match their faith. Uh, This is a picture of a guy named Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark was a sociologist, passed away a couple of years ago, but he devoted basically his entire academic life to a single question. How did a persecuted minority group of people in the ancient world in the span of 200 years become the most dominant culture-shaping force in the world. And what he discovered was things like this. In the first century, if you had a baby and you didn't want it, and there could be a number of reasons. It's a patriarchal culture. You wanted males. That's a girl. Take her outside the city and leave her. Unwanted pregnancy, take it outside the city and leave it. Born with a birth defect, take it outside the city and leave it. And what would happen, this was called infant exposure, what would happen is that slave traders and brothel keepers would come sort through the babies to see who can we take here and raise as a sex worker or exploit as a slave. And wherever there were these groups of Jesus followers, They basically said, not in our city. We will claim those children, we'll adopt them, we'll raise them as our own. 
and they developed a reputation for doing this. In the first century, marriage was not held in high esteem by Roman men. They would sleep around. They would satisfy their sexual urges outside of marriage with slaves and with prostitutes, but they held their wives to a very different standard. And what women began to learn in the first century is like, oh, wait a second, if you marry a Christian man, he's actually held to the same standards of sexual fidelity that you are. And women began to realize you would be treated with greater respect and dignity in a Christian marriage. When plagues would come and decimate cities, people in the Greco-Roman world would run for the hills to protect themselves, but these Christians stayed behind. And they would give the dying water and food and they would often put themselves in great risk and die themselves. But the culture around them learned these words that I wanna leave you with is that for these Christians, the good news of Jesus in their lives became news that was actually good for the world. Guys, your deeds matter. Jesus cares a ton about them. And I just wanna leave you with this question. Is the faith, the good news that you claim to have in Jesus, is it translating into news that is actually good for the world around you? Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you and we give you permission to run around our hearts and our heads and upend tables. Um, God, bring comfort for those of us who are hurting, bring challenge for those of us who are just way too comfortable. And God, you don't need to hear this from us, but I think that it's powerful for us to say it, that we give your spirit permission to have its way in us. So may the life-giving, animating energy of your son, Jesus, take over within us and lead us to life. In your name we pray, amen.